Welcome to the Poetry Questions TPQ20, where we sit down with your favorite authors to talk about passions, process, pitfalls, and poetry. My name is Chris Margolin. Let's expand the conversation. How's it going? Oh, not too bad. How are you doing? Oh, doing all right. Well, thanks for joining me on TPQ20 today. Of course. <laughs> I feel like we've known each other, what, about probably about nine years now? It feels like that. I mean, we've only met, you know, the one time in Portland, but I feel yeah. like we've been interacting just for years and years. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, we, we normally start things off by, you know, asking Asking people kind of, you know, if, to give your elevator pitch or, you know, that bio that your publicist doesn't have, but let's introduce you to the world. So our readers know you from the poetry question as kind of our, uh, our reviewer and our, you know, kind of consummate uh, like educator and historian about poetry. But who are you? I'm a dad. And I think that's probably my most defining role. I have six kids with my wife. We're a blended family of six. So we stay really busy in that regard. Um, and of course, I'm really, really dedicated to um, teaching and social justice. So I try to balance that through a lot of sort of transgressive and activist teaching and then a side hustle working with a social justice nonprofit where, you know, I can kind of turn writing into something proactive since I'm not able to get out and physically protest a lot of the time. Right. Well, and what do you, I guess then as we move toward the, you know, the poetry portion of things is poetry when it comes to writing is poetry, what you read mostly or cause you really do run in a, in a million different directions when it comes to genres. So what is, you know, what do you kind of find as your true passion? Is it, is it poetry? Is it, uh, you know, nonfiction, social justice work, or where do you think you kind of fit in that world of what you go to? Um, I think it depends on what I'm trying to do, but I think I always come back to poetry. You know, I'm, I'm really into the academic side. I like theory and I like nonfiction. I started college really, really interested in theoretical physics and, and trying to go that route. And poetry is just something that's always spoken to me both on a, a spiritual and a mental level. So I return to it most often. I definitely think, you know, I might read uh, anywhere from 150 to 200 books a year and easily half of them are poetry collections. But I do really gravitate toward poetry that I feel like is attempting to make some sort of social impact, whether it's increasing visibility or giving voice to underrepresented communities. I really do appreciate those who approach poetry as a medium for communicating for and, and with people that don't typically have the privilege to do so. What brought you into that direction? What was kind of the catalyst for, for you know, for what you read and, and how you kind of respond to the writing that you read. Was there kind of an author that brought you or an, a moment that brought you this into this? You know, I think probably Ilya Kaminsky had a big hand in, in the shift that I felt with my poetry. I met him back in 2007 as part of a writer's retreat in Galway. 
And he was the professor from the San Diego side. And then my fiction professor was the professor from the University of Arkansas side. But I ended up choosing to go with poetry because I'd already worked with my professor quite a bit. And I'd been writing poetry and really involved in the performance poetry scene out of Fayetteville, Arkansas. But though I had been really moved, you know, most often by poets like Andrea Gibson and by Wakefield, at the time, Joaquin Zawateneo was really influential to me. It was talking with Ilya about the impact on a personal level that poetry can have, coupled with reading, you know, poems from his first collection, Dancing in Odessa, that opened my eyes to the ways in which we can talk about our personal experiences and still have them really affect change on a human level with other people. Who are the, other than Ilya, who are the poets that you think are, I guess, twofold? Who are the poets who we would know the most, who are, you know, those prominent people who people can go to because they're, you know, unnamed to start with? And then who are maybe a couple writers that we should be going to, to get maybe a, a different story or, or you know, a, a more um, just kind of that hungry, unknown story? You know, I mean, as far as poets that people know, I definitely, I turn to people like Franny Choi and Denez Smith and Fatima Asghar and Andrea Gibson. I mean, constantly. I teach them each semester um, when I'm sort of in a bad place myself. I always go right back to them. And they're poets who move me, who motivate me, and who really push the boundaries of what I think about poetry. So I appreciate that I'm constantly growing when I return to their work. As far as as poets that most people wouldn't or may not know, I mean, I think Taylor Bias is really coming up this year. I don't know that I had heard of her prior to last year, but she is just an, a stunning talent. Um, On a that has rocket really rocked ride to the, yeah, and an amazing, truly, truly an amazing voice. Uh, out there. And I, it's so interesting how many of the, you know, this is probably the 60th of these we've recorded and how many poets go to Taylor as kind of that new voice of this generation. Yeah. I mean, she's just doing so much so fast. And, and I feel like she's also equally engaged with other poets. Um, oh, yeah. And that's really important to me. I gravitate toward poets that I feel are about fostering a new generation and uh, sort of spreading the laurels rather than gathering them. Um, but I'm also really moved, you know, by, by youth poets. And I've done a lot of work uh, through Louder Than a Bomb and then through young DFW writers. And I would say that when people really want to experience hunger, they should find those youth communities and whether they're volunteering or just attending the public events, young people today have such a, a unique combination of talent and fire that I think is really, really inspiring, both for the genre and just for society in general. Do you think, uh, I had an interesting conversation with, with Mahogany Brown about the idea of you know, this race toward relevance sometimes. Uh, you actually brought up this question to me, so I'm going to turn it around on you. The way that Mahogany and, and Kalisa as well, Kalisa Ray, and I spoke about this as well, it was interesting to kind of look at this as, does each generation have this 
race toward relevancy? Are they kind of clawing their way to the top of the Twitter food chain, you know, any way they can to stay in a spotlight? Or, you know, how do people stay relevant? Um, and do you find that there is this, you know, is it a, a mass welcoming or is it kind of a fight, you know, between the poets that are out there right now? What are you finding in a, kind of your own question that you had? Uh, you're the one who brought that to me from Mahogany. So I'm throwing that one back at you. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I am an expert on staying relevant. I haven't published anything of my own since my second book in 2017. And I'm not sure most people would really know me as a poet um, so much as they know me as the guy who writes a lot about poems. I think that's where kind of, you know, I think your your relevancy has been, you know, Ebony Stewart calls you the historian of poetry. And I think that's, you know, one of the great compliments out there is you, you watch everything and you know what's kind of, you kind of got your eye to the, you know, your eye or your ear to the ground, however you don't want to say it. You know, what do you see out there, though, as somebody who's pretty active in following everything, what are you seeing out there as far as how people are trying to stay relevant? You know, I think what I've seen is a distinction between becoming relevant and staying relevant. And I think a lot of people initially try to become relevant. And I think that a lot of uh, emerging poets still do place a lot of weight on getting a chapbook deal or a full-length collection deal under the, the belief that it's going to sort of be the welcome mat. But honestly, what I see, especially in social media spaces, but also at conferences, is that the people who stay relevant are the people who meaningfully engage with the genre and with other people who are writing in the genre. And I think that's, you know, Ilya to me is a perfect example of that because we did wait quite a long time between Dancing in Odessa and Deaf Republic. And during that time, Ilya did not become sort of less recognizable, but more recognizable. And in part, it's, you know, it was because he was publishing a handful of poems. But I think more than that, in every space, he was always uplifting local poets. Uh, if you follow his Twitter, he's always quoting poets and pointing people toward interesting conversations. And I see that with a lot of the poets who have the, the strongest followings and the most consistent mm -hmm. uh, engagement. People like, um, you know, Chen Chen, uh, Saeed Jones, um, Dennis Smith, Taylor Bias, if you follow them on Twitter, they're constantly talking about these other poets who impress them that we need to check right. out. And I think that really speaks to their passion, not just for success, but for um, growth within the genre. I like that. Um, what makes a good poem? I mean, when you're... When you sit down to, and I guess I guess we split this up into a couple categories. What for you uh, makes you feel that poem, and then what makes it a teachable poem? Because in your speak freely work uh, with poetry question, and then in just your work in general, um, you truly put together a you know a lesson plan for poetry. Um, what makes a, a good poem, and, and what makes a teachable poem? Um, so for me, you know, in my classroom, I do tend toward the, the language of effective and ineffective poems um, because I don't like to bring the negativity of suggesting there are bad poems. There are definitely poems I don't enjoy. 
Um, and they're poems that like styles uh, and content that I notice myself reacting to more um, than others. I really, really tend toward poets that are subtle um, with their language. Um, I'm thinking right now of, of Ada Limon's um, The Hurting Kind mm. and the number of poems that I shared with friends um, was just abnormal, even for me. Usually I might send two or three as I'm reading a collection to, to friends, but I think with her, I screenshotted 20 poems uh, from her <laughs> digital book in the space of two days because I just kept reading them and each one of them seemed so quiet and, and so patient. But at the end of the poem, there was um, such a revelation of emotional, um, I, I, I don't even know how to put it, like an emotional weight that it carried. I do tend to be most moved by uh, effective uh, or rather emotional poems that are centering the human experience and sort of grounding that experience um, I'm thinking of Tincture is probably the, the strongest example of a poem uh, that just floors me. Um, I don't know if you've read it. It's, it's by Andrea Gibson, and it's a prose poem, which they don't normally write. But in it, um, the, the premise of the poem is all of the pain that a body can experience, but it's told from the perspective of um, these sort of ethereal substances that don't have a corporeal form. And through that conversation, the speaker sort of realizes um, the, the power of a physical form because you can feel even if what you feel is not always positive. Um, and as far as what makes a teachable poem, I think any poem is teachable. I think the number one thing that someone should consider when they're teaching a poem is um, how excited they are about the poem. I definitely think that teachers influence student reactions. And if they're hesitant about a poem or if they enter a conversation thinking that they don't adequately understand a poem, then that is going to sort of bleed onto the students. But I do tend also to. Um, select poems that can invite conversation about political issues, about the daily lives of our students and sort of what they're experiencing, sometimes um, intentionally to spark debate or controversy, other times to introduce them to language uh, right. that I'm, I think they may not have been introduced to yet so that they can properly discuss the things that I know are concerning to them and that they have the language to really articulate what they're experiencing. Is there one that has stood out to you above all others as you, you know, as you've been doing this for quite a while, is there a poem that you think was so immediately connect that so immediately connected with your students? Um, just, just hands down above everything else. Um, I would say the two that I return to most often in my classrooms and that get uh, very strong responses from students um, on a regular basis are The Widower by Rachel McKibbins and The Madness Base by Andrea Gibson. Uh, the Widower is a pretty old poem at, at this point. I'm pretty sure I had it in a chapbook of hers 
before I ever started teaching. And it's a fairly short poem, but it's so imagistic. And students, I think when they enter that poem at first, they feel like they don't understand anything because it's all pictures. And when we start thinking about what these pictures tell us and the scene that it really creates, uh, a lot of them start to really understand imagery on a new level and the purpose of, of analyzing imagery so heavily in any form of writing. I like that. As someone who comes from kind of that, that slam spoken word world uh, and also has experience on the page, I, and it's nice as I haven't gotten asked this question in a little while of anybody really, but what do you think are the differences and do you feel there's a difference between writing for the stage and writing for the page and how has that treated you over the years? I definitely think that, that there's a difference for me writing for the stage quickly became formulaic. It's fairly easy to craft a poem that follows a traditional arc in terms of narrative and energy. Um, If I'm mapping performance pieces, then I would say seven or eight out of every 10 follow a very predictable cadence in terms of delivery, uh, the, the amount of energy at certain spaces, the moments when a poet pulls back, you can really time them pretty uniquely. And it works for an audience. And I don't think that that's necessarily a shortcoming of slam. I think that the competitive side of slam sort of necessitates that you give the audience something that is just predictable enough that um, they're comfortable and just interesting enough that they reward you for originality. I think that One unique thing about performance and the oral delivery of poetry is that I actually think a lot of poets are learning that you should, essentially, this is an idea that that Ilya put forth during the workshop in 2007, you should always perform your poems even when they're written for the page. So I don't necessarily think that page poetry cannot be performed, but I think those who are most attuned to the aural feel, the sound of their poetry when it's read out loud, are using more sonic device within the poems themselves. I think when you read them on the page, there's a whisper in your head as opposed to a sort of vacancy. When I think, for instance, of poets that make me feel vacant on the page, I would point to people like maybe Billy Collins, I don't feel a lot emotionally when I read his poetry, it seems very flat. But when I read someone, you know, like Denez Smith or like, you know, James Tate even, uh, or Wilfred Owen, there's a sense of urgency. And I think a cadence that is built into the poem, even if it doesn't follow a strict meter, that sort of begs for an orality. Do you think some of that, because... Billy Collins is an interesting one to me. Like I, I've never really, I've never really understood Billy Collins. I like Billy Collins, but I don't know why. Um, and I think that's kind of what you, you know, a little bit about what you're saying. They're kind of, they write, they're good enough to, you know, they were an odd poet laureate choice, I thought. Um, but they, yeah, they, they write enough to be recognizable and to be comfortable and comforting at times. But yeah, there's not a lot of, um, it's not a lot of, you're not left grasping for a lot. You're, yeah, you're just kind of left with a poem. 
Yeah. And, you know, I actually think that my experience with Billy Collins on the page was really marred by the fact that I saw him in person before I had ever read anything he'd written. And um, I was with a friend from, from Fayetteville. We had just driven from Fayetteville, Arkansas, all the way to uh, Charlotte, North Carolina for the Independent World Poetry Slam. And we spent five days, you know, surrounded by just these incredible talents. And then we rushed home knowing that Billy Collins was going to give a reading at the university. Um, so we, we rushed home. I kid you not, we were awake all night. And I think we were in Fayetteville for about an hour and a half before this reading started. So we got over there and he had the most disinterested, monotonous delivery I've ever experienced. Uh, and I've never been able to get past that on the page. I feel a disinterest with, you know, the, the words on the page. Um, and really with the exception of maybe forgetfulness, I can't name a single one of his poems that echoed with me for even a day after. Uh, and for me, I feel like so much of that is in the way it's delivered, which all goes back to me, to, to Ilya's statement that you should always perform your poems. They should always be, sort of embodied when they're spoken. That's fascinating. I think it, it, it really is, it's the voice of a person once you see them live really does, does affect the way that you read, uh, that you read their pieces. Um, I know for the very, one of the very first, uh, well, the first Portland Poetry Slam that I attended, um, Andrea Gibson was the feature. Um, I'd never been to a poetry reading before. Um, so having Andrea Gibson as my kind of, uh, you know, introduction to the world of, of what spoken word was like, and then putting that voice to everything that has been on page from them is just beyond inspiring. Um, who was kind of the first, who was the, do you remember who the first like really eye-opening live poet was for you? Yeah, so I was definitely spoiled in this regard. Um, I want to give a quick shout out to Russ Ritter, who I know doesn't have a large sort of um, presence in performance poetry these days, but he came uh, to my introduction to music theory class and delivered a few poems and then invited us for an extra credit assignment to go and see this feature poet that he had organized uh, through through one of the clubs in the student union. And I knew nothing about it, but I was really moved by Russ's performance. I had never known poetry to be something that could act like that. Um, when I had taken creative writing in high school, uh, the poems were very expected and, you know, traditional. They're what, what I think most people think of when they, they think of poetry nothing exciting or invigorating about them. And he just said, hey, my first year teaching creative writing, I was teaching like John Donne. I thought it was really exciting. My students didn't agree with me, but I was really stoked about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't exciting on the back end for me. It's something I walked away from and I didn't write again for a long time, okay. but he delivered these poems about, you know, like hitchhiking, and mangoes being the sexiest fruit. And 
it was absurd. And he had these three foot long dreads hanging down the front of his face, this foot tall uh, mohawk dyed green going down the back, uh, you know, the center and back of his head. Oh, yeah. I think 28 piercings in his face at that point. And I was just like, this is incredible. So I went to the event and it turns out that my very first feature performer was Shane Koizan. <laughs> so when I say I was ruined from the get-go, I've always been known as a critical judge. Um, I've always had a pretty um, keen ear for, for performance poetry that works. And I've been unafraid yep. to say what I think is ineffective. And I think it stems from the fact that he's the first person I heard and I got both of his chapbooks. I carried them around constantly. They were covered in antifreeze and windshield wiper fluid by the, the time uh, I retired them. I still have them. Um, oh, yeah. And it's, this was coming off. This would have been 2002. So I think coming right off of his win at the National Poetry Slam. Um, and then to, to make matters worse, Russ invited me you know, the, to the next show, which was going to be a month away. And I show up for that show and it happens to be Derek Brown on his lasers of sexcellence tour. So it's just like, <laughs> I, I was ruined from the get go. I didn't know what bad poetry was until I'd been going to these events for probably six months. Uh, that's, it really is incredible. Cause I think around that same time, it was about 2000 is when I met Taylor Molly. Um, and started taking workshops from him uh, and just learning as much as I can. And then the first, the first paid show that I ever, poetry show that I ever went to, uh, was hosted by Powell's Books in Portland. And it was uh, a niece opening up for Taylor, Molly, and Shane Poisson <laughs> um, at an old, like an old church in downtown Portland. Um, and I remember the whole thing starting off with, with Taylor apologizing for anything said that might get them in trouble with God. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all as an intro from Taylor. That's no, a set all. list. Yeah, Taylor. Yeah. And, and Taylor is, I mean, you know, I, I know that Taylor can be a polarizing figure in poetry sometimes, but I think I I, th I mean, had it not been for what teachers make, you know, running around the internet in 2001, I don't know that I ever would have really understood what slam poetry was. I don't think I'd really gotten into it yet. Yeah. And I mean, I, I agree. I think Taylor, you know, I understand why he's polarizing in the community. Um, and I don't teach his poems as often as I teach mm -hmm. others, but I've certainly been moved by some and, and, my students have been really impacted by a handful of his poems. And I met him in 2006. And one thing I will say about him is I have never encountered a more efficient and effective bout manager than Taylor Molly. And I have hosted, mm -hmm. judged, competed in many performance, you know, um, sectors. And he just, he ran the right. world poetry slam bout. Um, where I was keeping score, he ran that as smoothly as I've ever seen any event run. It's, he is kind of one of those just great professors of the game. Um, and I, I have a lot of respect for what he's, for what he's done. Uh, 
you know, he's definitely an elder statesman of poetry at this point. Um, and it's, I think he's got one of those voices that's just so immediately recognizable. What Learning Leaves is such a, a great book for, I think, um, foundational, like those, if you wanted to get, when I wanted to get my high school students into poetry, What Learning Leaves um, and, you know, uh, or like Shane's Visiting Hours um, or, you know, uh, Said the Shotgun from Saul Williams. Um, like those are always kind of my initial go-tos. Uh, I think there were, there were some really good poets paged and staged to come out of that, like the late nineties, early aughts, you know, the Def Jam scene really. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think I, I leaned on a lot of those classics for a long time as well. Um, they have so much power. And I will admit that I am a victim of the push for relevancy in the classroom. Yes. And one thing that I love about the way you approach poetry is that I love your, uh, I love how, how kind of vicious you are about that idea of teaching living poets, like who's right now and out there. Yeah. I mean, you know, Scott Woods did the math uh, a few years ago on Facebook. It feels like a few years ago. It was probably seven or eight years ago now, but he did the math um, on books published a year. And it was something like 40,000 books published a year. And he said, let's assume that 10% of those that are published are great books or or good books. And so that means that we have about 4,000 good books a year. And then of those, let's assume that about 10% are great books. And that left us with 400 great books a year that come out, which is just an astronomical amount of books to keep up with. So when I started reviewing poetry, I was immediately struck by how many phenomenal collections are coming out every single year. So I'm always updating what I teach from, not necessarily because I don't love what I've taught in the past. It's just that Every single year, I, you know, I've got a stack right now of 22 books that I need to review. And every <laughs> one of them has poems that I want to teach. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good segue toward the end of this. Out of that stack of 22 books, who are maybe those three, what are those you know, three books that you're staring at and just cannot wait to dive into? Um. So definitely, definitely Saeed Jones. Um, I just saw the, the release of his, um, of the book cover for his mm-hmm. collection. The, the version that I have, the ARC, doesn't have the cover yet, uh, but I'm nope. so excited for it. His memoir absolutely floored me, and I've been very, very eager for this book to come to light um, and just sort of as I'm, I'm staring at this, I've also got this um, Warsan Shire book that uh, is called Bless the Daughter Raised by a Voice in Her Head. It's been out for a little bit, but I've been giving priority to the books that I'm commissioned to um, or that I've been asked to review. But I think I'm going to read that one uh, during a conference next week. And I'm so, so, so excited for that. And as a third one, I would probably have to point to The Wet Hex by Soon Young Shin. Um, it's just such an intriguing premise and, and a book that keeps staring at me. It's in the middle of my pile, but I have a uh, sneaking suspicion that it's going to work its way to the top very quickly. 
Very cool. Well, thank you so much for hanging out on TPQ20 today. Uh, I know that all of our listeners can always head over to the Poetry Questions to check out Speak Freely uh, and to read your reviews. Where else can we find you and so that we can uh, grab up what is out there from you? Um, well, honestly, my website is, is going to go down in a few days. I've decided not to renew it right now. Okay. So, I mean, I'm on Twitter, uh, sort of intermittently, but always eager to talk poetry um, via Twitter. Um, and I don't know, other than that, honestly, shooting me an email or, or uh, <laughs> that seems to be the easiest way to find me. My books are going out of print. Um, so my, my novel's staying in print, but my poetry collections are going out of print really quickly. So if anybody wants one of those, they have to snag one from right about now before uh, the stock runs out because there won't be another printing. Wow. Uh, they are brilliant. So I hope that you do sell out of all of them. Um, as always, it is wonderful to speak with you. Uh, I always look forward to what you have to say about poetry every month. Um, it's definitely one of my highlights. Uh, so I feel very lucky and honored to have you as part of the Poetry Question team. And it has been a pleasure to talk to you on TPQ20. Have a yeah, it's day. been great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Poetry Questions TPQ20. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe. See you next week.